I'm talking to you today about truth. We're beginning our fall series going into the holiday season, talking to you about the ultimately important topic of truth. Celebrate Recovery is a lie hunter. It's a deception exposer. And we all need that in our lives because truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. In John 18, uh, there's this amazing story. It's, it's, it's running up to the culmination of the grand narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the, word, the word tells us that, that in our lives, that we see this temporal, physical realm around us, what we can see, touch, smell, taste, all those things. And then there's this whole other reality behind the veil that is actually a bit more real than what it is we see. And the word tells us that in this realm, there's a great cloud of witnesses watching us, looking at you, looking to see what it is that you're, what, what part you're going to play in this grand story. And on this day, the day that John 18 is pointing to, the great cloud of witnesses was at rapt attention. On this day, heaven and hell were looking at the stage of earth with the greatest interest ever, ever, that had ever happened on any day in history. The enemy of our souls was putting forth his very best effort to thwart what it was that Jesus Christ had come to do. You see, he, he knew from the beginning his role and the role that God said Jesus Christ would play. And so everything, generations of planning were coming to fruition from the, voices, from the forces of heaven and the forces of hell. And they were on the eyes of the Savior of our souls, Jesus Christ. This day was the battle of midway when it comes to turning of the tide in the spirit realm. This, this narrative that we have, this greatest moment point that we have in the word, minus the rapture of the church. This is the greatest moment in spiritual history that we're talking about right here and right now. The, 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 the narrative that we're given, the record that we are given of what happened on this day needs to be scrutinized, contemplated, meditated upon, and ingested. Every single word of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is of dire importance. Every word that was written is powerful. Every word that was written has been talked about for thousands of years now. Most of you in this room know the key phrases already. Most of you in this room know the power behind Jesus saying when, when he was approached in the garden, and he had spent the night travailing in prayer, knowing what was before him, carrying the sins of the world, and the betrayer comes, identifies who he is, and they, just to jump through the legal hoops of it, ask if he is Jesus of Nazareth. And on this day, in our Holy Scripture, he says these words, I am he. And those words are so powerful 
that these soldiers that had come to get him were knocked to the ground. Just by him identifying who he was, they fall down. That they had the audacity to get back up and still arrest the guy is beyond me. I've never stood in front of somebody and been knocked down by their words. Sometimes almost by their breath, but not their words. You understand what I'm saying? He utters these words, I am he. And they fall to the ground because of the power on these words. Some of the other phrases that were, that were talked about in this narrative is he's hanging on the cross and he screams out the words that we've been going back to for thousands of years because he's talking about the people there, but he's talking about us today. He's speaking through time and he's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing right now. Forgive them. We have relied on those words and leaned back against them for over 2,000 years now with great solace, peace, joy, confidence, hope, and comfort. These are important, important words. We're, we're given the words of Peter's denial. That, that this man that had walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and, and been with him for three years on this earth, that he has the, the, the fear grab a hold of his heart. To the point where he says, I don't even know who this guy is. And we're given those important words to contemplate, to think about. That Jesus, not that Peter failed per se, but that Jesus in his great love, his huge mercy, wrapped his arms around that joker a few days after that and said, I love you. I love you. Feed my sheep. I love you. I forgive you. Feed my sheep. We have relied on these stories, the, the, the great, great est declaration in history is at the end of all of this, when he's again hanging on that cross and the savior of our souls says words that are still reverberating in the spirit to this day. He says, it is finished. On this greatest day in history up until now, Jesus Christ declared over you what we've already talked about numbers of times already that we sang this morning, and I felt it just like you did, the presence of God, the Spirit of God over that line of that song, and he's rewriting my history. Guess what? It culminated in him saying, it is finished. It's done. Every single sin, every single betrayal, every single absolutely selfish act that you were going to commit was all a future happening. And on that day, Jesus said, it's done already. It's done already. It is finished. These are important, important words that we read in this passage of Scripture in the Gospels, and specifically in John 18. Uh, the, the story goes like this. Jesus was a powerful, influential loving teacher that was turning the religious leaders of the day on their ears. He was raging against all of these religious structures that that man still has the audacity to build up that aren't the point they're about us. And Jesus steps on the scene and says, I'm going to give you truth. I'm going to give you reality. And the people that hated him the most were the church. The people that he got along with the least were the Sunday morning attenders. 
Does that still happen sometimes today? Yes, it does. But if we really pay attention to the story, we can navigate around those pitfalls and lean into what Jesus was actually doing. So the the religious leaders of the day, they rise up, they try, oh man, they throw everything at him that they possibly can. They try to confuse him, they try to discredit him, they try to trap him, they do all of this for months and months and months. And then at the end of it all, they say, you know what, I think the best solution to this is let's just kill the guy. He is too dangerous to be allowed to live. He is too dangerous to be allowed to speak into this culture that we control. Let's just kill the guy. So they make up some phony baloney accusations and they go and capture him. They take him to the legal rulers of the day. Like they deem him heretical. They deem him worthy of death. And then because they don't have the authority to murder somebody because they don't like him, They have to concoct something and go to the actual governmental authorities. So they take Jesus to what is one of the most pathetically sad individuals in human history. His name is Pontius Pilate. And Pilate, all through this narrative, you can tell he is struggling with what's going on. He's struggling. He, he, he actually receives Jesus, listens to the accusations, which were that, that Jesus is trying to overthrow the Roman government, is what the religious leaders of the day tell Pontius Pilate, and he questions him a bit, and he goes, man, I, I don't want to deal with this. I just, let's just send him back, okay? You guys, you, I, I see no reason that this guy should be killed. You guys take care of him. So he sends them back, and they, they rise up in their brazenness, and they say, no, we demand his death. He's trying to overthrow the Roman government that, it, that is ruling the land right now. So they send him back, and you see this poor guy, Pontius Pilate. You see him just try to weasel his way out of it. You see him try to, try to dodge what he eventually finds out he's going to have to do to appease the crowd. His wife even comes to him and says, I think I had a dream about this guy. You're playing with fire. Don't mess around with this. Send him back. If my wife says that, I'm going to listen. But he was bound by the constraint of public expectation. And so he he goes into further detail and further conversation with Jesus. And, And the point that the Jews, the religious leaders of the day were making was that This guy has set himself up as a king. There is no king in the Roman rule. There is no king in this society. So if he's setting himself up as a king, he's looking to overthrow. So he starts pulling that thread a little bit and talking with Jesus about this. And and he says, hey, are you in fact a king? Jesus calls himself a king and that he says, everyone in my kingdom listens to me. So he says, are you a king? And Jesus says, well, everyone who listens to truth understands that I am. And we're given this poignant, rhetorical, almost subconscious question that I believe an exasperated man threw out into the air, not necessarily to Jesus, Not necessarily to those listening. I could be wrong about this. That's just Ken. That's not theologian Ken. That's just Ken. But it seems to me like Pontius Pilate, when he utters these words, what is truth, is just exasperated. 
And he's saying something that we have wrestled with from before that time, since that time, and on this very day, Jesus says, if you know truth, you'll know who I am. And Pilate probably kind of even laughs. <laughs> and what even is truth? What even is truth? And we have been wrestling with that ever since. We've been wrestling with answering the question that an exasperated man threw out into the air in a moment of frustration and it's recorded for us to grab onto and wrestle with what is truth. Webster's Dictionary defines truth as the body of real things, events, facts, actuality. Events, facts, inarguable facts, Actuality, the, the second definition says, the state of being the case. The case that's inarguable. It's facts. You cannot mess with truth. Truth almost always has a subconscious capital T because it's true. Right? 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 <laughs> Oh, this is going to be a great, a great series. <laughs> you know what? I just want to pause for a second, and I want to say, um, I, I said this about Celebrate Recovery, that it's a, it's a lie hunter. The church should be too. I should be too. Oh, these walls should house liberating, final, capital T, truth. To the point where I want, to, I want to say this. There are lies functioning in this room right now in many of your lives. I'm coming to get them. Okay, it's not, I'm not trying to sound like Rambo up here. I'm not trying to be like, ooh. That's all. No, no. Jesus is truth. Jesus says things about the truth that we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about. And I want to declare into the spirit realm that the great cloud of witnesses are watching. Look, 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 look. We're going after lies. We're going to cast down lies in this house. We're going to cast them down. We're going to expose them and we're going to say, enough. I'm not believing this garbage anymore. What even is truth? Um, there is only yes and no. There is only right and wrong. There is only black and white. Now, some things can get complicated, but there's always truth to be landed on. And I would contend this, the greatest battlefield in the world today, the greatest battlefield in the world today, in our culture, in your homes, on your jobs, in your families, and in your individual lives, is the battlefield of truth. The world seems to be intent on throwing off the shackles of objective truth. Don't, don't we? It's all around us. So we, we look at truth and we want to make it subjective. We want to make it open to interpretation because objective truth surely can't be real. Objective truth is the concept of truth independent from individual subjectivity 
or bias caused by one's perception, emotions, or imagination. Now, I'm going to read it again. Objective truth is the concept of truth independent from individual subjectivity or bias caused by one's perception, emotions, or imagination. How many of you have very often heard the phrase, live your truth? Has there ever been a phrase more bogus ever uttered? Live your truth. Has there ever been a true that's more lowercase t than the one used in the phrase, live your truth? But oh my goodness, do we hear it every single day. What is your truth? What do you feel? What is your imaginations, your experience, your perspective? What is your lens? Because that's the lens that real truth is landed on, is yours. Has truth ever been in worse hands than yours? I'm pointing that back at me. Truth has never been in worse hands than mankind's. And Pastor Ken is part of mankind. Live your truth. It feels noble, though, doesn't it? It feels, it feels self-actuated. It feels good. Uh, we take quotes like Ralph Waldo Emerson saying, to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is, in fact, the greatest accomplishment. That sounds awesome until you try to play it out. Now, I'm not saying you conform. There are some structures in life that you've got to rebel against, but not capital T, truth. Okay, we, we extrapolate that quote too far. We end up doing really silly things. Things like calling a life that is very easy to see as a human being a clump of tissue until it's birthed into the world so that our truth can say, that's not a life. I'm not murdering my child. Live your truth. We wrap ourselves around that statement and we feel empowered. Um, best self-media has... has Seven signs that you're living your truth well. Uh, number one, you feel balanced. I, I, want you, I want you to think about how noble these things feel on the surface. They feel right. They feel good. They, they feel, rah, I'm living my truth. Number one, you feel balanced. That's a good thing. Okay. Uh, number two, you aren't looking to be completed by anyone or anything else. That's, that's noble. That's good. Uh, number three, outside validation isn't your only source of validation. Number four, you're not dependent on others to feel good about yourself. Those last three really sound like somebody who wrote this article right after they broke up with a significant other. I don't need you. I'm complete by myself. I'm living my truth well. You don't feel guilty speaking your truth. Say whatever you feel and call it your truth. Nobody can argue with that, Right? You don't take everything so personally. That, that's good. The last one is also good. You believe that you are more than your job, your relationship, your weight, or your financial status. 
Thank God for that. There's a whole lot of nobility wrapped up in this concept, isn't there? There's a whole lot of, of identity wrapped up in this, but if we find our identity in our truth, oh, do you know how easily, how often that unravels in your hands and you're left screaming at the world like a jilted boyfriend or girlfriend saying, I don't need you. Live your truth. It, it ends up making us do really silly, silly things. I had a buddy in college who uh, started dating this girl. They're both in their early 20s. And, uh, and, and they had that, that pivotal DTR moment, the define the relationship moment. And at the end of that conversation, he, he musters up his courage and he leans in and he, he gives her a kiss and, and, and she kisses him back. And, and it's this beautifully romantic moment. And you know, the birds are singing and the moon is shining bright and, you know, this is a very Disney-esque moment, right? And, uh, and so she says something unthinkable to my buddy. She, she says, that was the perfect first kiss. And he, wow, wow. I mean, number one, that's pretty impressive. You're, you're in your early 20s and, and I'm, I'm your first kiss. That's, I mean, he felt honored. He felt like, this, this is really something, you know? And not that it would have been a big deal to him had she kissed plenty of guys before, but it was, it was this, this special thing that impregnated the moment with this real intense importance. I, I, was, I was her first kiss. That's really cool. Then he goes and he starts having some conversations, and, and he hears about another friend of a friend who makes the audacious statement that... Uh, uh, weeks before the momentous Disney evening of the first kiss of all time, uh, that he, I'm glad the kids are in the back, all right, we can, we can be a little bit more PG in here, that he, he was at this girl's apartment and they, they got uh, a little make outy. okay? So, I mean, he doesn't put a whole lot of stock in it, but then he goes back and, and just, you know, I mean, asks this girl and says, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's just, you know, I mean, locker room talk or whatever, you know, somebody's shooting their mouth off, but... I just care about you, and I want, to, I want to make sure that we're on even footing. I don't want anything in here that's going to you know, start devolving into suspicion and mistrust. So I heard this, this rumor that this guy was in your apartment, to which he says, oh, oh yeah, that's, that's true. And he goes, oh, oh, okay, well, um, did anything happen I need to know about? And she says, well, he kissed me, but nothing more. So my buddy goes, I thought you said, to which she goes, no, 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 you don't understand. He kissed me. <laughs> did, did you let him? Well, yeah, I didn't want to be rude. <laughs> did, you, did you kiss him back? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing you do. You don't, you know. But I, I thought you said, not that this is a big deal at all, really, um, but why was I your first kiss? Oh, because you have to understand, you were the first one I wanted it to happen with. So therefore, I define it as my first kiss. I, I, I give you three guesses to uh, figure out whether or not that relationship worked out for my buddy. Was it because this girl had had the audacity to have kissed another boy in her 22 years? Absolutely not. It's because she had such a malleable relationship with truth that there was no foundation to stand on. 
I'm mocking this poor girl as if all of us haven't done things like that. We end up being silly if we have no bedrock of capital T truth. We end up defining things that aren't as if they are because I'm living my truth. Has this ever been more prominent in human history than it is today? I mean, you look around you, maybe look inside of you. I just jotted down some things that, that I can see just happening with such, such prolificness out there. My, my, my truth is, some people will say, especially, you know, maybe in the, in the younger years, my truth is I'm surely going to be rich someday. Like, it, it's common. For some of you it is, and I'm happy for that. For a lot of you it's not. But we all believe that it is for me, Right? So when I'm sent that first credit card with my name all embossed in silver on it when I'm 18 years old, surely I can go and max this thing out. Because my truth is, I'm going to be a rich YouTube personality someday very soon. Surely I'm going to be a millionaire someday. It's coming. So might as well just start now. The resources will come later. That's, that's my truth. Uh, my truth is the rules don't really apply to me, so I can live life in a way that should be consequence-less. I can treat people the way I want to treat them. I can be disciplined or not with whatever makes me happy and expect everything to work out because my truth is I'm above the rules. My truth is God calls me precious princess snowflake and everything is going to be roses for me. My truth. My truth is that, that when I get married, marriage is going to be exactly what Hollywood and Jennifer Aniston has told me it's going to be. <laughs> and this person is going to exist to make me happy. And every day I wake up next to this beautiful person in my bed, it's going to be them waking up full of rapturous delight that I'm next to them. And they will spend their lives making me happy feel the way that they did on our second date. That's my truth. What's our marriage divorce rate at this point? My, my truth is I'm in just, oh boy, did I fall for this one. <laughs> I lived this one for way too long. My truth is I'm physically indestructible. So I can, I can live my life in a way that will be free of physical consequence. I can eat however I want to eat. I can behave however I want to behave. I mean, I'm 16 years old and I got an involuntary six-pack. Surely that's never going away. <laughs> I can ride my motorcycle 90 miles an hour in a 35 zone with no helmet on and, and I'm absolutely indestructible. That's, that's, that's my truth. You know what? I just got back from a motorcycle ride with my father and two of my uncles and a guy that married one of my cousins. At 42, I'm riding a whole lot more wisely than I did when I first started in my mid to late 20s. Dad used to mock me for looking in his mirrors and I'm texting while I'm riding my motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, ask me if I'm doing that now. No, because I recognize my truth is actually quite silly. Uh, my truth is that I believe the world owes me something because I'm a victim. And everything that is wrong with me is somebody else's issue, and therefore I can't improve. I must wait 
on the injustices that have been done to me to be corrected until then I cannot move forward. That's my truth. That's the truth I'm buying. That's the truth I'm being told. That's my truth. That ends up in a life stuck. That ends up in a life wasted. I think, you know, I've heard this a lot this week with one of, the, one of the things that our president said on Constitution Day this week about educating children in a way that convinces them that they're victimized by something is a form of child abuse. To convince our children that you have been wronged in a way that you will never be able to overcome is so anti-God, it's nauseating. Are there injustices? Plenty. Can you overcome them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, you can. And you instill that into your kids instead of making them believe that my truth is I need to be apologized to. Otherwise, I will never overcome. You're more than that. You are more than that. Why is this battle for truth raging around us so intensely? Well, there's this other story in the Bible where uh, Jesus is, is, is hanging out in the Mount of, uh, at the Mount of Olives and, and the crowds come to him. And, and it's at this point in his ministry that the, the religious leaders of the day are trying to, to trap him. And so they bring to him a, a woman that they say was caught in the very act of adultery. This presentation raises so many questions. Who was watching? Where's the dude? Okay, but they bring this poor woman to Jesus and they say, the law says that she should be killed. What do you say? There's no argument that she did what they accused her of. So it had happened. And they brought to him a rigid set of rules to trap him so that this guy would look at a dear woman in the eyes and say, yeah, kill her, kill her. So he says something that embodies the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, guys, let me, let me tell you this. If, if you're perfect, chuck away. If there's anybody in this crowd that has never sinned, that has never committed a wrong deed, you, Jesus says this, you have the authority, I'm saying it, you have the authority to act out the law. What does that tell you? The one person in that crowd the one person in that crowd that had the authority to condemn and to kill was the only one saying, redeemed. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. So in this moment, in, in this beautiful moment where he, he takes what I've always imagined is her tear-stained face and lifts it up to his and, and says, daughter, where are your accusers? And she looks around and says, Lord, they're gone. And he says, then neither do I accuse you. Now go, sweetheart. Go, princess. Go and sin no more. Live in a way that's going to bring you true life. And he sends her off. And oh, it's one of the most powerful stories in the entire gospel. And in this exchange, the, the religious, religious leaders come back up to him and they, they start arguing with him. And he argues with them about judgment, about his identity, about his mission. And, and the word says that, that, that he was winning souls when he's talking. He's, he's winning souls by talking about the things that he's even arguing with the religious leaders of the day. And in John 8, he says this words on this day, if you abide in my word, it's up on the screens, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the crux of what we will be talking about for the next few weeks. It explains why there's been such an intense attack on truth. The answer to the why is found in this statement. Are you ready for it? Why is truth under attack? Because there's an enemy of your souls that wants you bound, and God wants you free. And he's identified 2,000 years ago. It's truth and truth alone that can do that. And we've got way too many believers walking around in shackles because we live in 80% truth, 65% truth, 99% truth. But Jesus says the truth by its very nature is all-encompassing. You need it all, and when you have it all, it's going to set you free. So why? Why in the world has there been such an attack continually against truth and common sense? It's because this is a cosmic battle. You ready? Right here and right now, we are in the middle of a cosmic battle between God's truth and the enemy's deception. God's truth and the enemy's deception. And I'll go as far as to even say this. God never promises us a rose garden. He never promises us perfection. But he promises us freedom. And far too many believers are walking in bondage. Far too many believers are racked with anxiety and fear. Far too many believers are incapable of doing all that God has called them to do because they're crippled by this bondage inside of them. Reverse engineer this, you're living under a lie in some way, shape, or form. If you're crippled with anxiety and fear, there's a lie that you have ingested and it's wrecking something inside of you that Jesus has always been speaking freedom to. You're playing your role in the cosmic battle between God's truth and the enemy's deception. Ravi Zacharias is one of my heroes. He just passed away very recently. He said this, the single most important question anyone can ask is the question of Pilate. What is truth? The single most important question anyone can ask is the question of Pilate. What is truth? You see, Pilate didn't know when he uttered those words that he was asking the most important question asked to the most important question answerer ever. What is truth? And Jesus has always embodied truth. You need truth. You need to love truth. You need to not be afraid of truth. The truth will set you free. A few years ago when I was, uh, um, I was married already, but I was having some real physical problems. My, my uh, kidneys were developing uh, kidney stones on a really fantastic rate. And in the worst season of these, these attacks, I, I was passing sometimes two kidney stones a week. Anybody else out there ever had a kidney stone? Any, any, anybody? Men and women alike? They, they say that it's the worst pain or, or the pain closest to a childbirth that a man can experience, which I've joked around in the past is what enabled me to stand by my wife's side when she was giving birth to Caleb and be like, baby, I know. I've, I've been there. You're going to be okay. In case you can't hear at home, they're laughing uproariously because Pastor Ken could not be that stupid, and he isn't. Um, but there were, there were seasons of my life in that, that period of probably about around two years or so that I, it was necessary, I'm unapologetic about this, it was necessary for me to live on opioids because the pain is that horrific. 
I'm not sure I would have wanted to live had I not had some sort of relief from it. So there's the season of my life that is very hazy, that, that I, I, I was in a stupor of painkillers. And I had some well-meaning brothers and sisters in the Lord say, Ken, you got to be careful. you got to be careful. We recognize that that you need this. And praise God, they did some surgeries on me, and I believe the Lord intervened and miraculously healed me. I don't pass kidney stones at all anymore. Praise God for that. I I am a miracle in that. That that has not come back. I'm, I'm delivered. While I was going through that, the truth was, the truth that I didn't really want to hear was that these medications destroy lives. That if you need this sort of you got to be very, very, very careful with this. You know what I used to do? Have you guys ever heard of that show, Intervention? Yeah. It's horrific. I mean, it's a camera crew following around people that are, are addicted to life-stealing drugs. And, and they, they, they record the wake of destruction in people's lives that have surrendered and, and, and given themselves over to things like Mark, heroin, and cocaine, and these things that... that and, very often their stories started with, well, you see, I was in a car accident, and I got this prescription, and I liked it a lot, and I gave my life up for it. I liked it a lot. Am I allowed to say that? Is it okay to be that transparent right now? Percocet makes you feel awesome. And the truth is, it's dangerous. The truth is, Ken, you hold in front of you the examples of not just street rats, but doctors, lawyers, disciplined, hardworking, moral people whose lives have been destroyed by walking through the door that you're walking through now. That was truth. And I had to love it. To be honest with you, I think loving that truth, that very, very inconvenient truth, could have saved me waste. Could have saved, I, I don't know, had I not held that in front of my eyes. Looking at my life saying, you know what, I'm in my 30s, I got a lot of living left to do. I want to have babies and I want to treat them well and I want to accomplish and I want to build the kingdom of God and I want to experience the, the miraculous supernatural of Jesus in my generation and if I forfeit that for a feeling, I'll ruin it. And I am capable of ruining it. That was truth. I'm standing here at 42, the pastor of a vibrant church that I believe God is going to do nothing but bring more vibrancy in life to, the father of two beautiful babies, the husband of an even more beautiful wife, and I'm proud of being able to live the life that I live now because I held in front of me an inconvenient, unpleasant, capital T, truth. And I love that I did. I love that I did. Stand with me. Your relationship with truth has got to be unapologetic and unafraid. Even when the truth is scary, even when you're dealing with things that you don't want to deal with, Jesus says today, through the generations, 
Like he said in John chapter 8, if you know the truth, the truth is going to set you free. You got nothing to be afraid of when it comes to truth. You got nothing to be afraid of when it comes to truth. It may make your day a bit more inconvenient, but it's going to guarantee that you move on in power and into the destiny that God has for you. And this is what we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about, is what does God say about you? What does God say about America today? What does God say about politics? What does God say about social agendas? What does God say about your marriage? What does God say? And we are going to unashamedly and wholeheartedly throw our shoulder into answering that question because the truth will set you free. I'm devoted to the truth. Look, your pastor is devoted to the truth. If the truth is you got some work to do, I'm going to tell you, you got some work to do. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to present it to you on an easy-to-digest platter. I'm going to say, this is what God says. Not heavy-handed. That was a bad emphasis moment. I don't want to smack anybody around in here because Jesus doesn't smack us around. But he presents truth, and the truth will set you free. Here's what I want to do. In the back of the, the auditorium, there's two boxes right by this exit door and that exit door, and it's usually what people drop their offering into on the way out. Um, if there's a topic of truth, because we're going to spend a few weeks on this. I've got my topics. Maybe your topic already fits with one of mine. That's awesome. But I'm going to open up this body, and if you're hearing this online, I'm going to invite you to email or call me. Matter of fact, up on the screens, I'm going to put, put up my email address. Go ahead and take a, a screenshot of that on your phones. KenK at mbcaog.org. KenK at acronym Mountain View Christian Assembly of God, mbcaog. Org. Are you confused about anything right now? Confusion reigns supreme in our culture, and it is anti-God. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. If there's a topic you want to discuss that you want my opinion on, that you want me to tell you unashamedly what I believe the Word says about that topic, drop it in. Or just write down. I'm, I'm telling you, you can steal our offering envelopes and write down a subject on the back and drop it into those boxes. You can create a fake email address that says you're John Smith and send it to KenKaog.org. I want to talk about truth because the truth will set you free. I want us to be unashamed about the truth because Jesus said the truth will set you free. And you're too bound. You're too bound. The church is too bound. This country is too bound. And the truth will set you free. So as we go into a very short song in closing... I'm going to ask you to just contemplate right now. God, speak to me. In your own ways, just say it right now. God, speak to me. What areas, what areas does deceit reign inside of here? What areas am I justifying? Because I think it's easier. And I'm, I'm literally bound by something that I'm inviting in voluntarily. Speak, oh voice of truth. Speak, oh God. Illuminate then give me the courage to address truth.